1996. Ray Long sits at his computer furiously typing an email. For nearly 30 years, Ray has lived with a secret. Back in 1964, his elderly neighbor, Margaret Gibson, gave him a shocking deathbed confession. As she lay dying, she admitted to killing famous silent film director William Desmond Taylor. The Taylor murder is one of Hollywood's most notorious unsolved crimes, and Ray believes he might have finally solved it. Problem is, until now, he just hasn't known what to do with the information. Margaret Gibson is long dead, and the investigation into the Taylor murder has been closed for decades. Chances are, if he brought the dying ramblings of his elderly neighbor to the cops now, he'd be laughed out of the station. But now, in the burgeoning age of the internet, a new type of investigator has emerged. The web sleuth. A few months back, Ray found a webzine dedicated to the Taylor murder, aptly titled Taylorology. It's an obsessive compendium of everything related to the case, accompanied by in-depth analysis. For years, he'd searched for something, anything that could possibly tie his old neighbor Margaret Gibson to the case. Scanning through the zine's issues, he still didn't see her name, but he knows that if anyone can help him dig something up, it's this group of Taylor enthusiasts. So Ray outlines everything he knows in an email to Taylorology's founder, Bruce Long. Ray and Bruce share the same last name, but what really connects them is their fascination with the Taylor murder. Ray describes Margaret Gibson's deathbed confession and tells Bruce that she was a silent film actress in the 1910s and 20s. He hits send. Bruce Long was most likely confused when he received Ray's email. That's because during all of the Taylorologist's decades of research into the Taylor murder, the name Margaret Gibson never came up in relation to the crime. Neither did her on-screen alias, Patricia Palmer. Ray Long's email is the first time most of them have ever even heard the name. But in the meantime, they've had plenty of other suspects to investigate. To understand how Margaret Gibson avoided suspicion, we must first understand the explosive aftermath of the Taylor murder and the larger-than-life suspects that obscured her from the investigation's view. At the moment of death, people often have an overwhelming need to get their biggest secrets off their chests. From murder, fake identities, illicit affairs, and even government cover-ups, this show dives deep into the world's most explosive deathbed confessions. This is the story of Margaret Gibson, of the words she spoke as she lay dying. It's the story of Hollywood's silent film era and the dark underbelly it tried so desperately to hide. It's about destiny and fate. Two very different lives that somehow became inextricably entwined. It's about the LAPD's race against the clock to find a killer and the people that did everything in their power to stop them. I'm Estefania Hagman, and this is Deathbed Confessions. Hear that? It's the sound of someone whacking the ground with a rake. Specifically, they're beating around the bush, which we've done enough of in this ad too, so let's get right to it. The new moneymaker scratch-off from the Ohio Lottery doesn't beat around the bush. Moneymaker. Play the game and you could win money, up to $2 million. 
with more than 88 million in prizes, ranging from 50 to $500. Moneymaker cuts right to the cash. Lottery players are subject to Ohio laws and commission regulations. Play responsibly. As a plant-based cheese company, Dea has never talked about beef in an ad before because someone somewhere once had a beef with saying beef and plant-based together. So putting a slice of Dea cheese on a beef burger, not okay. Well, our delicious melty cheese has a beef with your beef about beef because any step towards plant-forward eating is a step in the right direction. Dea, 100% plant-based, even if you're not. Now made with Dea Oat Cream Blend. Hi, I'm Blair. Want to hear something scary? Join me as I read the creepiest urban legends, folk tales, and ghost stories that I learn on my travels around the world and that we receive from listeners like you. But only if you think you can handle it. Listen on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. Until next time, sweet screams. The list of suspects compiled by police and armchair detectives over the years is what makes the murder of William Desmond Taylor so fascinating. It reads like a game of Clue. Was it the ingenue, Mary Miles Minter, who'd become singularly obsessed with Taylor? Or was it her abusive stage mother, Charlotte Shelby, who didn't want the much older Taylor to ruin her daughter's chance at stardom? Perhaps it was Taylor's best friend, the troubled A-list actress, Mabel Normand. Mabel had been the last person to see Taylor alive, and it was an open secret that she had a serious addiction to cocaine. Or maybe it was his valet, Henry Peavy. After all, Peavy was the one who found Taylor's body. Today, we'll be looking at this enthralling cast of players, the women that captured the police's attention for decades. We'll travel back in time, back to 1922, in the days and weeks following William Desmond Taylor's murder, into the minds of the investigators on the case, and into the minds of the studio executives working tirelessly to thwart their efforts. It's February 3rd, 1922. Hardly 24 hours have passed since the discovery of William Desmond Taylor's body by Henry Peavy. Taylor's apartment at 404B Alvarado Court has officially become a crime scene. Not that there's much evidence left for police to investigate. If you'll remember, before they arrived, a group of executives from Taylor's studio, famous players Lasky, had gathered up scores of documents and left with them. What were they trying to hide? That's the question that lead investigator Detective Sergeant Edgar C. King is asking himself at this very moment. Imagine an archetypal 1920s detective, grizzled, wearing a rumpled suit, a fedora, and a stoic expression. That's Detective King. King, as a proud working-class man, is unimpressed by the glitz and glamour of Hollywood. The only thing he cares about is getting to the truth. He's a seasoned detective, the best Los Angeles Police Department has to offer. Over the span of his 18 years on the force, he's cracked some of Tinseltown's biggest cases. Some say King has solved more crimes than any other police officer in Southern California. The Taylor murder is just the kind of case King excels in. He has a knack for seeing connections others can't finding clues in seemingly innocuous pieces of information. If anyone can find William Desmond Taylor's murder, it's him. And like any good detective, he starts at the crime scene where he takes account of all the evidence so far. First, the murder weapon. The autopsy results found that Taylor had been shot with a 38 caliber revolver. 
That in itself isn't so unusual, but what is unusual is the type of bullet used and the trajectory it followed. The bullet found lodged in William Desmond Taylor's neck was old. It hadn't been manufactured for about 15 years. This strange antique bullet had entered Taylor's lower left side, traveled through his rib cage, punctured his left lung, and shot up through his chest before coming to rest in his neck. It didn't make any sense. The holes in Taylor's shirt and vest didn't line up. Apparently, he'd had his hands raised when he was shot. Some officers are speculating that the assailant snuck up behind him and ordered him to stick him up before firing. Others believe that he'd been embracing his killer right before he was shot. But who was the armed assailant? If Taylor had been hugging his killer when he was shot, that means it was someone he knew, someone he was close with. A neighbor reported hearing a muffled gunshot between 8 and 8.15 p.m. on the night of February 1st. Around the same time, another neighbor saw a man she didn't recognize leaving apartment 404B. This might not seem so consequential, but it was enough to clear Henry Peavy. If it had been Peavy, the neighbor certainly would have recognized him. After all, Peavy with his flamboyant suits and silk scarves sticks out. The witness tells King that the man she saw was dressed like her idea of a motion picture gangster. Plus, the mystery man was white and Peavy is black. So that scratches the valet off the list. Most of King's colleagues suspect Taylor's disgruntled ex-employee, Edward Sands, but that theory just doesn't work for King. Again, the neighbor would have recognized him. But what if, King thinks, the killer was not a man at all? Sure, Taylor's neighbor thought she saw a man leaving his apartment after the murder, but this is Hollywood. If there's one thing people in the movie industry know, it's how to create a good disguise. He's too good an investigator to rule out the possibility. During their search of Taylor's home, investigators found several pieces of evidence that suggest the director had been involved in a clandestine relationship with a woman. The first is a pink silk nightgown found stuffed in one of his drawers. Some believe, because it's quite large in size, that the nightshirt belonged to Taylor himself, but King is convinced it belongs to a woman a woman that would often spend the night in Taylor's bed. The next piece of evidence is a lacy handkerchief, certainly too feminine to have been Taylor's, embroidered with the initials MMM. Finally, hidden throughout the house, police find love letters written in a strange but easily decipherable code. Taylor having a secret girlfriend isn't so suspicious in itself. Lots of people like to keep their love lives private. But King has reason to suspect that Taylor knew his killer, maybe intimately. He knows it wasn't a robbery gone wrong. When Taylor's body arrived at the morgue, he had $78 cash in his pocket, a two-carat diamond ring on his finger, and a platinum watch on his wrist. Plus, nothing of value was missing from his apartment, except, of course, the papers that the studio execs absconded with. No. For King, this scene has crime of passion written all over it. But who was passionate enough about Taylor to gun him down in cold blood? King's mind drifts to the last person who'd seen William Desmond Taylor alive. A-list actress, Mabel Normand. Mabel Normand was reportedly one of Taylor's closest friends. Some say that the two were romantically involved, but Mabel always insists that their relationship was purely platonic. In the movie business, Mabel is known as a comedian often playing alongside Charlie Chaplin. 
She's beautiful with wide-set bedroom eyes and thick black hair that stands in stark contrast to her milky complexion. Mabel's also a real firebrand, known for her love of partying and surly vocabulary. In 1922, she was one of the most recognizable faces in the country. But very few people know about the heartaches that lurk behind her pearly white smile. For years, Mabel has struggled with cocaine addiction. It got so bad at one point that most of her friends didn't expect her to live to her 30th birthday. But one of her most trusted friends, William Desmond Taylor, never gave up on her. He knew she could beat her habit and encouraged her to go away and get clean. Fast forward to 1922, and she's 30 years old and very much alive, thanks in large part to her pal, Billy. On the night of February 1st, 1922, Mabel Normand asked her driver to make a pit stop at William Desmond Taylor's home while she was on her way back from a shoot. Taylor had called her earlier in the day asking for her to come by. He had a few books he wanted to give her. When Mabel arrived at Taylor's house, he insisted she stay for a drink. Over Peavy's famous orange blossom martinis, the pair discussed the books he'd bought her, a translation of Nietzsche and Rosamundi by Ethel M. Dell. Then Mabel played piano for a while until around 7.35 p.m. when she informed Billy that she was tired. She had to get up at the crack of dawn the next day to get to the set of her latest film. Ever the gentleman, Billy insisted that he walk her to the car. It was just a short walk from his door to the road, so he left his front door open. As Mabel's lavender-colored limousine pulled out of sight, the two friends jokingly blew kisses to each other. At around 7.45 p.m., he turned and walked back to 404B Alvarado Court. This was the story Mabel told the police, anyway. But on the morning of February 3rd, the district attorney receives an anonymous letter. Written in the penmanship of, quote, a lady of some refinement, it says a careful search of Mabel's basement will reveal a pearl-handled 38 caliber revolver. Other officers had already questioned Mabel the day before, but this letter changes things. After all, one officer reportedly saw her rifling through Taylor's drawers the day the body was discovered. Was she trying to hide something? Her driver confirmed that Taylor was very much alive when Mabel left. He saw him with his own eyes as he escorted Mabel to her car. But that doesn't necessarily mean that Mabel wasn't somehow involved. King is almost certain that Taylor's killer had slipped in as he was walking Mabel to the door. An altercation occurred that resulted in the killer shooting Taylor around 8 p.m., a mere 15 minutes after Mabel's limo pulled away. Maybe one of her old drug dealers had pulled the trigger, mad that Taylor had taken away one of his best clients. Or maybe she discreetly come back to his apartment and shot him for some unknown reason. Some people believed the pair were secret lovers. Perhaps that had something to do with it. The only way to find out is to ask Mabel herself. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. King drives over to Mabel's opulent apartment. When he arrives, the actress is inconsolable. Her blue eyes are red and puffy from crying, and her hair is a tangled mess. But in spite of her state, Mabel is cooperative. 
she lets King and his partner, Sergeant Wynn, search her apartment without complaint. They find two revolvers in her possession, but neither of them are the 38 caliber snub nose they're looking for. When questioned, she swears up and down that she and Taylor were simply close friends. Never had their relationship become romantic. King has been at this job a long time. Mabel has an alibi provided by her driver and based on her cooperation, her general comportment, and the fact that neither of the revolvers matched the murder weapon, he concludes that she had nothing to do with the murder. Later, he'll write of Mabel. While she became a central figure in the sensational investigations, I do not hesitate to say that all suspicion cast upon her was unjust. So Mabel's been ruled out, but based on evidence found at the crime scene, King knows that she wasn't the only troubled young woman in William Desmond Taylor's life. There was also pretty little Mary Miles Minter. At just 19, Minter is one of the most famous actresses in the country, maybe even the world. With a halo of blonde curls framing her delicately shaped face and blue shining eyes, she's the young ingenue that every director wants in their film. In films like Anne of Green Gables, Minter plays the innocent love interest. On camera, she's a shrinking violet, a blushing virgin. But King has a feeling that the real Mary is nothing like the character she plays on screen. For months, scandalous rumors have circulated around Hollywood about a possible romance between Mary and William Desmond Taylor. Scandalous because, well, Taylor, at 49, is old enough to be her father. The press have yet to confirm these suspicions, but King knows something that they don't. Remember the handkerchief found at the crime scene? King is certain the embroidered initials MMM stand for Mary Miles Minter. He also suspects that the pink silk nightgown is hers. If both these items did belong to Minter, she and Taylor had much more than a working relationship. But the most damning piece of evidence that points to a clandestine romance are the letters investigators found in the toe of a riding boot in Taylor's closet. All of them are written in a strange childish code and all of them are signed Mary. The letters are pretty steamy too. One reads, I want to go away with you, up in the hills, anywhere, just so we can be alone. Wouldn't it be glorious to sit in a big comfy couch by a cozy warm fire and the wind whistling outside, trying to harmonize with the faint strains of music coming from the Victrola? I'd go to my room and put on something scant and flowing. Then I would lie on the couch and wait for you. I might fall asleep, for a fire makes me drowsy. Then I would awake and find two strong arms around me and two dear lips pressed to mine in a long, sweet kiss. If this letter ever got out, it would mortify the private reserve tailor. And the studio? It'd be a disaster. Suddenly, their sweet, innocent ingenue's reputation would be tarnished. It seems possible to King that Taylor, perhaps under pressure from the studio, or perhaps nervous for his own reputation, might have broken things off with Minter. And based on these obsessive letters, Minter wouldn't have taken it well. But was she passionate enough to kill him in cold blood? And on top of the troubling evidence was the way Mary behaved on the day Taylor's body was discovered. On February 2nd, Mary's custom-built Robin's Egg Blue Roadster careened up to Alvarado Court. The young actress practically fell out of the driver's side door and marched up to apartment 404B. A throng of reporters followed, shouting questions at the beautiful young actress, but she ignored them, for now. Determined, 
She marched up the steps to Taylor's apartment, but a policeman stopped her. It isn't true, is it? She asked dramatically. The policeman nodded and explained that, yes, Mr. Taylor had indeed died. By now, more reporters had gathered at the foot of the steps. Mary suddenly had an audience. And Mary, who's been acting all her life, is certainly comfortable on stage. With flair, Mary raised her little wrist to her forehead and began to swoon. Oh my God, I can't believe it. She cried as thick tears ran down her cheeks. Mary might have been good at acting in silent films, but for King, these words seemed force. Overacting. Hammy, almost. King has a hunch that Mary Miles Minter could believe that Taylor was dead, that she was there when it happened. But he's now starting to suspect that someone else pulled the trigger. Someone close to Mary. Very close. You see, Mary never acts alone. She is constantly, obsessively followed by her mother, Charlotte Shelby. Shelby is the quintessential stage mother. You know the type. A mother who pushes her own dreams onto her children, uses them for their own personal gain. That doesn't see her kids as individuals, just a means to an end. Since the time Mary could stand, Shelby has circled around her like a buzzard, feasting on her success and making sure she never steps out of line. Through Mary, Shelby has become one of the most powerful women in Hollywood, a millionaire. When Mary was born, Shelby was a working-class housewife in Louisiana. She yearned to escape what she saw as a mediocre life. So that's just what she did. When her daughters were of school age, she packed up and left for New York without so much as a word to her husband. Before long, she had her two daughters working the theater circuit. Only Mary's career ever took off. When Mary was just 10 years old, Shelby forged her birth certificate so that it appeared she was actually 16 in order to subvert child labor laws. From that point forward, Mary was forced to act like an adult wearing heavy makeup and provocative outfits. Never was she allowed to just be a kid. A year after the Taylor murder, Mary will tell the press, I have been the wage earner, the family meal ticket ever since I was five years old. I wasn't given a chance to get more than three or four years of actual schooling. Mother was ambitious socially and financially, and I had to turn beauty and talents into cash. As a result, Mary always resented acting. While women like Margaret Gibson would kill to be in her position, Mary yearns for a simpler life. Sure, she liked the luxuries that being an A-list movie star provides her, the parties, the fancy dresses, the mansions, but she would trade it all if she could just find someone to love her, really love her, not just use her like her mother does. After signing a contract with famous players Lasky Studio for $1.3 million, Mary became an overnight success. Suddenly, there were lots of men courting her. Though Mary was just 15 at the time, she certainly looked older. Charlotte Shelby has always made sure of that. So it wasn't surprising that older men suddenly became interested in her. And Mary, who never had a father, relished the attention these older men provided. But Charlotte Shelby always stood in the way. Shelby knew that men could not be trusted and there was no way she'd let some lecherous actor or director erase her years of work. Which Shelby felt is exactly what happened when Mary became pregnant at just 15 by then 42-year-old director James Kirkwood. Mary was sure that she'd finally found a way out. She and Kirkwood would run away together, have lots of babies, and live a life of domestic bliss. But 
Kirkwood had no intention of marrying the young actress. Charlotte Shelby knew that, so one day, in a rage, she dragged her daughter to a back-alley abortionist and forced her to end the pregnancy. Of all the things her mother had done to her, this topped Mary's list as the worst. But Mary was still young, and her attention quickly turned to another older director, William Desmond Taylor. In 1919, Taylor directed Mary as the titular character in Anne of Green Gables. For Mary, it was love at first sight. She instantly became infatuated with Taylor, following him around the studio a lot like a lovesick puppy. Charlotte Shelby watched in disgust at how her daughter was acting. Her daughter's pregnancy could have ruined everything. Shelby wouldn't allow something like that to happen again. One day, Mary was sitting next to Taylor on set when her mother charged up. Shaking with rage, she got in the director's face and screamed, If I ever catch you hanging around Mary again, I will blow your goddamn brains out. Detective King has heard all about Charlotte Shelby's hatred of William Desmond Taylor. She made no secret of it. Countless employees at the studio witnessed her explosive outburst towards the director. In fact, Shelby has a reputation as a real hothead. Even the studio's most senior executives seem to be afraid of her. Detective King also knows something else. Something that could definitely tie Shelby to Taylor's murder. In his investigation, King finds that a few years back, a private detective had given Shelby a weapon to protect against her daughter's obsessive fans. That weapon was a 38 caliber revolver. The curious relationship between Mary Miles Minter and William Desmond Taylor brought two suspects to the forefront of Detective King's investigation. Mary's mother, Charlotte Shelby, who would do anything to protect her daughter's career, and Mary herself, who clearly had an unhealthy infatuation with Taylor. Was William Desmond Taylor planning on marrying the young ingenue, sweeping her off her feet and taking her out of the business like she so desperately wanted? If so, her mother, Charlotte Shelby, would certainly not be pleased. In fact, she'd be furious. Mary was Shelby's cash cow. The obsessive stage mom had worked for years to get to the cushy spot she was in now. And some hotshot director wanted to take all that from her? Not a chance. Detective King knows that Shelby would do anything to stop that from happening. She'd reportedly threatened to kill him before. Maybe she finally made good on that promise. Alternatively, Taylor could have rejected Mary's advances, causing her to spiral into a passionate rage and shoot him with her mother's 38 caliber revolver. To unravel this mystery, King needs to know more about the real nature of Taylor and Mary Miles Minter's relationship. Detective King tracks down one of Taylor's close pals, an actor named Arthur Hoyt. Hoyt tells King that he'd visited Taylor about a week before the murder, Usually, his pal Billy was happy to see him, but that night he seemed worried, depressed even. Hoyt asked his old friend what was wrong. Taylor turned to him, his piercing blue eyes weary from stress. He swore Hoyt to secrecy, making him promise to never utter what he was about to tell him to another living soul. Taylor then told him that the dearest, sweetest little girl in the world was in love with him that he was old enough to be her father and that just the night before, she had shown up at his doorstep at three o'clock in the morning begging to be let in. 
She said if he didn't let her in, she'd scream so loud she'd wake up the neighbors. Of course, Taylor didn't want that, so he let her in. After a few hours of arguing, he finally persuaded the little girl to let him drive her home. She relented. Hoyt knew immediately that Taylor was talking about Mary Miles Minter. Billy was worried. This had become serious. She was obsessed with him and wouldn't leave him alone. He tried being gentle, explaining to her that he was just too old for her, that she needed a nice young man, but nothing worked. He didn't know what to do. Through the letters, the monogrammed handkerchief, and Hoyt's testimony, Detective King now knows for a fact that Mary has been lying to the police. She'd said that she hadn't seen Taylor in months, that the last time she saw him, they were on the streets of Los Angeles, she in her car and he in his. They'd simply waved at each other and that was it. Lies, lies, lies. But how can King get to the truth? King is sure that answers can be found somewhere in the scores of documents that the studio took from William Desmond Taylor's apartment. But the famous player Lasky executives are refusing to hand them over. Sure, most of them are probably fairly boring. Bills, receipts, letters from family or friends. But they probably aren't all innocuous or the studio wouldn't be acting so secretive about them. Let's consider this for a second. Here we have a movie studio refusing to hand over documents that could be imperative to solving a murder investigation. You'd think that the Los Angeles Police Department would have the power to simply demand the studio turn Taylor's papers in. But remember just how powerful the film industry is in the 1920s. The studio's influence reaches far beyond entertainment. They're in bed with politicians and even some very high-ranking members of the police force. Detective King deeply resents the system. He has a feeling that the studio executives are sitting on evidence. Evidence that they want to keep quiet. King is convinced that if the studio wants to end the investigation, they can at any moment by releasing the evidence, but for some insane unknown reason, they won't do it. That could only mean that the solution to the murder is somehow worse or more scandalous than the murder itself. There's no doubt about it. They know who the killer is, and it's someone in the Hollywood film industry. Detective King has a gut feeling that that person is either Mary Miles Minter or her mother, Charlotte Shelby. He aches to bring them in for an official interrogation, but every time he asks District Attorney Thomas Woolwine to do so, he's rejected. That's because Charlotte Shelby is close friends with Thomas Woolwine. Some say that at one point they were even lovers. Throughout the investigation, Woolwine will repeatedly protect Shelby and Mary from police investigation. But a few days after the murder, Mary's letters to Taylor mysteriously get leaked to the press. The papers are now pointing their finger at Mary Miles Minter. Suddenly, the American public, not just Detective King, see her as one of the prime suspects in the murder. Now, the pressure is really on District Attorney Thomas Woolwine to bring her in. On the day of William Desmond Taylor's funeral, February 7th, 1922, Woolwine finally relents but he is adamant that Detective King not be the one to conduct the interrogation. Woolwine appoints his own deputy, William Durand, to speak with Mary. Over the course of a few hours, Mary admits to being in love with William Desmond Taylor, but insists the relationship was never sexual. Her testimony seems sincere. She was simply a young girl infatuated with an older man. It's enough to convince Durand and Thomas Woolwine of her innocence. 
They also conclude that there's no reason for Charlotte Shelby to be questioned. Mary affirms that her mother had nothing to do with the killing and they believe her. After all, Woolwine has known Shelby for years. The sweet, vivacious woman certainly wouldn't have killed a man in cold blood. The men offer her their apologies and send Mary Miles Minter on her way. But Detective King is utterly unconvinced. He bulks at the softball line of questioning the DA's office through at Mary. He knows there's something there and he won't rest until he finds out what. Months pass as King watches his case slowly grow cold. Charlotte Shelby and Mary Miles Minter stop speaking with investigators, hiding behind the ornate gates of their mansion. Then, in October of 1922, Detective King gets an idea, and a pretty crazy one at that. To smoke Charlotte Shelby and Mary Miles Minter out, he'll create a fake news story, one that's sure to get their attention. King calls the editor of the Daily News and feeds him this totally fabricated story. Out of nowhere, a woman claiming to be a spiritualist had called King. She told him that the night before she had had a vision in which the murder of William Desmond Taylor appeared before her. The murderer was a woman, a woman with a very beautiful daughter who she wanted to protect at all costs. Taylor had somehow abused her daughter and the mother in desperation had shot and killed him. The spiritualist believed that the mother was justified in doing so, but stated that she couldn't keep her identity secret much longer. In two weeks' time, if the mother hadn't admitted to her crime, the spiritualist would tell the world her true identity. The editor eats King's story up. After all, spiritualism is all the rage. That evening, the headline, Spirit Has Real Dope on Killing, is plastered across the evening news. Like clockwork, the next day, Charlotte Shelby's lawyer shows up at the Hall of Records where King is doing research. The lawyer wants to know the name of the spiritualist who contacted him. If she told him the name of the killer, King feigns ignorance. This is big. Clearly, the article had made Charlotte Shelby sweat. Otherwise, why would she bother sending a lawyer to follow up on the claims of a spiritualist? Now, Detective King needs to find some physical evidence linking either Mary or her mother to the crime. Of course, he's dying to examine Charlotte Shelby's 38 caliber revolver, but it seems to have disappeared into thin air. King wants to examine the clothes Taylor was wearing when he was killed, but they were never entered into police evidence. So he heads to the morgue. Incidentally, he's just in time. Moments before he burst through the door, the morticians were preparing to burn the clothes. After all, they're covered in blood. What would be the point in keeping them? Remember that in the 1920s, DNA evidence was non-existent. In fact, police did not start using DNA to identify suspects until 1987. Bloody clothes were often discarded like this. In any case, Detective King isn't looking for blood. In fact, he's not quite sure exactly what he's looking for, other than it must be something that can somehow tie either Mary or her mother to the murder. After a careful investigation of Taylor's jacket, King finds three long blonde hairs, far too long to have belonged to Taylor himself. He has an expert compare them to a sample of Mary's hair. King had to pay a studio hand to pluck some hairs from Mary's brush on set to get it. The expert concludes that the hairs found on Taylor's jacket did indeed belong to Mary Miles Minter. To clarify, in the 1920s, hair analysis was a fledgling science. It was not accepted as an actual forensic science until 1950, so 
A discovery like this would not carry much weight with the district attorney. But for Detective King, the presence of Mary Miles Minter's hair on the jacket Taylor was wearing when he was killed is enough to launch a full-scale investigation. But District Attorney Thomas Woolwine won't hear of it. He's had enough of King's obsession with his friend Charlotte Shelby and her daughter. He orders Detective King to seize and desist his attempts to interview both women. Shortly after, Woolwine has all of the evidence for the Taylor murder transferred to his office. The bloody clothes, the handkerchief, the nightgown, the letters. Even the hairs King had so carefully plucked from Taylor's jacket are put under lock and key. Let's think about this for a moment. The district attorney of Los Angeles confiscates all of the evidence from an active murder investigation. Does that sound like the actions of a man trying to solve a crime? Or does it sound like he's protecting someone? Detective King certainly thinks that Woolwine is acting in the interest of his friend, Charlotte Shelby. His suspicions are confirmed when a few weeks later, all of the evidence in the Taylor murder mysteriously goes missing. King is furious, but his hands are tied. He has to let his suspicion against Charlotte Shelby and Mary Miles Minter go. For now, at least. But while Detective King has been focusing on the crime of passion angle, there are other investigators on the force who have been digging into a very different motive. Blackmail. You see, Taylor was acting very strangely in the months before his murder. Jumpy, nervous, panicking at the slightest noise. According to his valet, Henry Peavy, he started receiving strange phone calls at all hours of the night. And then there are his finance records. In their sweep of Taylor's apartment, the studio execs missed two important documents, his checkbook and half-completed tax income report for the year 1921. William Desmond Taylor was one of the top bill directors in Hollywood. He should have had an annual income of what would amount to around $700,000 today. But the bank book shows a balance of just 96,000. What had he done with all this money? William Desmond Taylor was not a man given to extravagance. Sure, he liked nice suits and indulged in a custom car, but compared to other Hollywood big shots, he lived quite simply. But his checkbook shows that in the months before his murder, Taylor began withdrawing large amounts of cash. None of this cash could be found anywhere in his apartment. Among these cash withdrawals was a check for $2,500 written in late January, mere days before his murder. Taylor had withdrawn this money only to redeposit it on February 1st, the very same day he was shot. Investigators deduced that Taylor must have been paying someone, someone who didn't accept checks. That means that the person he was giving money to wanted to remain anonymous. For detectives, this spells blackmail. The fact that Taylor redeposited the large cash withdrawal on the day of his murder could mean that he decided he'd finally had enough of being extorted, that he'd called his blackmailer and told them the deal was off. This news would have most certainly upset the blackmailer, maybe even enough to kill William Desmond Taylor. But the question is why and who? William Desmond Taylor was Hollywood's gentleman, one of the few members of the Glitterati to seldom appear in gossip columns. He was the moral spokesman of the film industry. What could he possibly have to hide? We'll find out on next week's episode that Hollywood's golden boy had a lot to conceal. 
Secrets so scandalous that they could have completely destroyed his career and potentially taken the movie industry down with him. But who could have known his secrets? He was a very private person and didn't often confide in his friends. Maybe his blackmailer was someone from a former life. Someone who'd known him at the very start of his career in 1912. Back then, he might have been less guarded about his secrets. After all, back then he was nothing but an up-and-coming actor. His dreams of greatness but a twinkle in his eye. In the last episode, we discussed Margaret Gibson and William Desmond Taylor's strange intertwining history. How they both cut their teeth acting together in a series of films for Vitagraph Studios in the early 1910s. Is it possible that Margaret Gibson knew things about William Desmond Taylor that no one else knew? Secrets that the famous director would give anything to hide from the public? If she did, those secrets would be quite valuable to Gibby because as it turns out, in the early 1920s, very shortly before William Desmond Taylor's murder, Gibby fell in with a bad crowd. A gang of shady characters that specialized in blackmailing rich men in Hollywood. Next week on Deathbed Confessions. We dive deep into the criminal underbelly of 1920s Los Angeles and explore Margaret Gibson's involvement in it. A new cast of seedy characters are introduced. William Desmond Taylor's secrets are exposed. Questions are answered as new information comes to light. For more information on Margaret Gibson and the murder of William Desmond Taylor, Amongst the many sources we used, we found Tinseltown, Murder, Morphine, and Madness at the Dawn of Hollywood by William J. Mann, a cast of Killers by Sidney Kirkpatrick, and Bruce Long's Taylorology newsletter extremely helpful to our research. Deathbed Confessions is a Spotify original from Parcast, produced in partnership with Noiser. Executive produced by Max Cutler, Drew Cole, and Pascal Hughes. Developed by Julian Boireau for Parcast. Written and produced by Addison Nugent. Music by Oliver Baines and Dory McCauley. Mixmaster and sound design by Thomas Pink for Noiser. 